At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. You know, this right here is a children's Bible. Now, this is the Bible that our kids' ministry and our children's uh, team give to families uh, for you to lead your children in times of devotion and times of understanding who God is and knowing His Word more deeply. This is that Bible. Now, many of you have used a similar Bible or... A number of children's Bibles. I know when our kids were in that stage, we kind of transitioned from one to the next and then to the next as they got a little bit older. But the intriguing thing is, whatever the Bible, whatever variety, whether it's this one or another one, one theme is always clear, isn't it? That theme is that God loves you. God loves you. That's right. Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the heavenly Father, our heavenly Father, He loves you. That's what's communicated on the pages of these children's Bibles. I want you to know that this is not just some warm and fuzzy feeling. It's not just there to make us feel better about ourselves, but it's true. God does, in fact, love us. And it's because of God's amazing love that you and I can gather to rejoice. And it's because of this reality that you and I have come here today, isn't it? We've gathered as God's people to bring Him the praise that He is due. That's why we gather. Because God's love is good news for children. God's love is good news for teenagers and for millennials. God's love is good news for young parents, for middle-aged guys like me, and for seniors too. God's love is clear throughout the Scriptures. Now, what's also clear, but what is rarely mentioned, whether you're talking about a children's Bible or you're talking about a devotional or you're scanning your favorite Uh, website, what's rarely mentioned is the fact that God has things that he dislikes too. We talk about the love side of God often, but oftentimes we fail to mention those things that he dislikes. And yet the scriptures are pretty clear. There's a number of things in the word of God that it's clear that God does not like. In fact, God does not love them. In fact, he would go so far as to call them an abomination. So, the Scriptures teach us that there is a God of love, and there is, on the other end of the spectrum, those things that God does not love. Today, you and I are going to be looking at a portion of Scripture that covers that spectrum, that captures both the love and the things that God does not love. Now, before we turn there, let's pray together. Gracious, loving God, 
We acknowledge that's who you are because we know that from your word. We know that from the reality of our experience with you. That you love your people. God, that's why we're here. That's why we've gathered to worship because of your gracious, merciful love for each one of us. But God, we're also troubled today. We're also burdened by what is happening in the context of our culture, in the context of our world. Many here today, we gather, we sit here, and we're just trying to get away from the events of the past week because they grieve our heart. Our minds can be distracted. Our hearts can be burdened. And in the midst of that, God, we need a reminder from you of your goodness, of your faithfulness, and of your sovereignty. God, you are still in control. You were last Sunday, you are this Sunday, and you will be next Sunday. And that's why we gather. And that's why we pray. And that's why we turn to your word, because your word is truth. And God, we need to... We need to have and experience that truth today. So give us eyes to see the truth that's found in your word. Give us ears to hear this truth. And give us the boldness and the courage that we need to walk out this truth in our world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, whether you are gathering with us here in person or if you are watching us online, we are continuing... Uh, a look at the first letter of the Apostle John in a sermon series called The Forgotten Virtue. Now, last week we kicked things off by looking at the first portion of the second chapter of the first letter. Did you guys get that? (laughs) It's the first portion of the second chapter of the first letter that John wrote. And when we did that, we were reminded that John was writing to a group of people that were not facing persecution, as many of the letters of the New Testament are. They're written to a group of people who are up against tremendous persecution. That's not the case with 1 John. Nor were these people likely new to the faith. They are believers in Christ. And so what John is writing to them, what he's communicating to them, is he wants them to understand intellectually and experience with all of their being the significance of their faith in Christ. The power of their faith in Jesus. So, with this reality, that's the backdrop. Let's turn to John's first letter, the second chapter, and we're going to pick it up at verse 12 this morning. John is writing. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your, son, your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you, you've overcome the evil one. And then John continues, 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What we just heard, what we just read together is a clear presentation of identity. Did you guys pick that up? It is a clear presentation of identity and what it means to be in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Who you are, who you are not, and why your identity matters. And so, John begins the section by referring to believers as little children. Now, I want you to know that if I stood on this stage and started out my message and said, good morning, little children, many of you would be a little offended by that, wouldn't you? You'd be like, wait a second. That's a little condescending, Pastor. I don't really like that so much. Calling me a child? I'm a 50-year-old man. What, What are you talking about? You see, John uses that term to communicate a rich spiritual truth. That's why he uses the term that you are a child of the living God. Little children. And as people of faith, we know God as our heavenly Father. Therefore, the believers that John is writing to and you and I, if we are in Christ today, we are in fact little children. We're little children. That's what John is helping us see today. So listen to those words once again in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. That's a statement of identity. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. Because of your faith in Jesus, who is the Christ, you are part of God's family. In Christ. So, little children, (laughs) let's dig a bit deeper into John's first letter and see what all those terms are. Did you catch those terms that kept coming up again and again and again? So, let's dig in and see why those terms are, in fact, so very important. Let's look a little more closely, picking it up at verse 13. It says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. That's one group. And he says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. That's another group. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Then he starts again. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you, you have overcome the evil one. You see, the terms here actually matter. You know, I'm going to speak to the guys here for a minute. We do that thing, don't we? We walk down the the aisle at work or maybe even in the hallways here at church. We look at a guy and we go, hey, buddy. What's up, dude? The guy has a name, right? 
He has an identity, and yet we do that, don't we? That's not what John is doing here. He's not throwing around terms casually. They actually have significant meaning. He's very intentional. Now, how do we know this? Because he's speaking to three specific groups. Three very intentional, specific groups. He starts with young believers. He gets to established believers. That's the word I'm going to kind of add to the young men category, and you'll understand why in a little bit. And then he speaks to mature believers as well. And he does so repeatedly in that text. It's not just something he does once, but he comes back to it again and again. So let's spend a few moments seeking to understand why he would do that. First, John again begins his counsel with little children, a description that we looked at a moment ago. And that is the thing that sort of serves as this umbrella over all of who he's writing to and who he's talking to. As people who know God as your father, you are under this large umbrella. So I will call you, John says, I will write to you as little children. The recipients of this letter are people of God. And then John breaks it down into a few specific categories. He does so based on their spiritual maturity. He begins with the mature believers. He says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And that might not seem like a lot, but what's actually captured in that portion of the text is the idea that time matters. The spiritual fathers have known God over a period of time. They have journeyed in faith over a period of time. They've come to trust God over an extended time and throughout their life. And so John delivers this message twice. He gives that to them. That you have that firm foundation. That you've trusted in God for a season of time. Then he moves on to the second group, that group that I'm calling established believers. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you, you have overcome the evil one. Here what John is doing is he is addressing those who are actively engaged in Christian life and ministry and getting it done in the context of the culture, who are leading the church in this season of time. They're leading the church against current attacks, you could say. Now, we know this because of what he says in verse 14. He says, because you are strong, the Word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. You are strong in your faith. You have faced the attacks, and you have overcome And so he calls them established believers. And he wants them to know and experience and live in the victory that they have in Christ. That's what John is writing. So he's communicating to the mature folks who've journeyed for a season of time. He's communicating to those who have established their faith and they're living it out in tangible, significant ways. And then he writes to the young believers and he says, I write to you children because you know the Father. It's foundational. You have a basic understanding of who God is. You would be a believer. Now, for all levels of spiritual maturity, knowing God is the foundation. That's what you see in this particular text. And it's from this foundation that we think, that we work, that we live, 
in a world that runs contrary to that. You and I engage in a world that is contrary to our belief system. And this is why. Because of that foundation that we have in the gospel, that all of God's people can and should embrace who we are in Jesus. You and I must embrace who we are in Christ. You see, to live as a believer, whether you are young, whether you are established, or whether you are mature in your faith, we are all dependent upon Christ. You see, this dependence is for our salvation. We speak of that every week. It is in Jesus Christ alone where we have our salvation. It is not based on what I contribute to the equation. It is not based upon my works, nor is it based upon your works. It is solely on the person and the work of Jesus who is the Christ. And here, Here in our text today, what John wants us to see, that living the Christian life in the face of bad doctrine as they're being tempted, we looked at that last week. In the face of apathy, we looked at that last week and we can know and experience that in our own lives today. And the temptation of the evil one, when we face all of those things, these things should drive us to embrace Jesus every day. One prominent 20th 20th century theologian explains it this way. He said, it is of supreme importance, supreme importance that Christians remember the status and the benefits that they have in Christ. There's status and there's benefits. Then he goes on, he says, for these would be their defense against error, faulty teaching, faulty thinking, and against sin. Jesus is our defense. So let me make this practical for a moment. What is our guard against the faulty spiritual teaching that many of us find on a variety of different websites? What's our guard? What is the believer's guard against the current temptation to either idolize or demonize those people we see engaged in the political realm in our world today? What is our guard? What is the guard against worldviews? When we turn on the TV, when we go to the website, when we are inundated with worldviews that oppose the truth of God's Word, what is a believer? To do? The practical answer is to embrace Jesus. You and I are called to embrace Jesus, and we are called to embrace who we are in Christ through faith. So we embrace Jesus. We follow his ways. We experience more of the grace of God in our lives, and we live according to the truth. Of his word. That's what it means to embrace Jesus. But John doesn't stop with 
those truths in 12 through 14. He wants all, us, all of us to know that through faith in Christ, we need to be ready for the battle that lies ahead. So let's turn back to that text. Let's continue on and see what John has for us, picking up at verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John has just given all believers clarity on what our lives should not reflect what our lives should not reflect, and that is a love of the world or a love for the things of the world. And by love, what John, what John is meaning is our time. It is our resources. It is our attention. When we give all of those things to the things of the world, we are falling in love with the world. We're giving our heart to the world. And as I stand before you, one way to describe that would be idol worship. We are worshiping the idol of our world and what's in the world. That is what John is writing against. He's warning believers against that in our lives. And I want to be very clear about something here. Because what I'm about to say might not be what you were taught when you were younger. When John refers to the world, he's not speaking of God's creation. Okay? When, he, when he's writing here, he is not speaking of God's creation. Throughout the Scriptures, we see that the beauty and the artistry of God's creation can actually draw people to a faith in Him. That can't happen. In our text today, John uses the Greek word cosmos, which simply means that it goes beyond kind of trees and rivers and lakes and mountains. It goes beyond that. Bible scholars say that there is a deeper meaning when we're talking about that word, the Greek word cosmos, and it is one that has a moral sense to it. It goes beyond just the basics, and there's an, an aspect of morality that is attached to it. You see, this means that Christ followers are called not to love the systems and a culture that we live in because those things have been forsaken. You see, a world that has placed its culture above God and above His ways is contrary to loving God. And Christ followers, you and I, and the people who John is writing to, we are called to turn from that, to reject that world. Because if we love the world, if we love that culture, it does in fact mean, it does in fact mean that we value them above God and above truth and above His Word. How can I say that? Some of you are getting a little uncomfortable when I say that. How can I say that? I don't, I don't want to come across legalistic, and so I want to be very clear. We simply cannot love the way that God deserves if we are investing our time and our talents and our resources in the things that are contrary to the Scriptures. 
We can't do that. I cannot say I love God and yet live in such a way that I pour everything that I am into things that are contrary to the truth. We can't love both. That's why the second response that God's people should have is that we are called to reject what the world offers. Christ followers are called to reject what the world has to offer. But this leads us to an obvious question, doesn't it? When, when I say that, that says, okay, well, well, Pastor, what exactly is that? What is the world offering to me? <laughs> the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Ouch! John is going for those big-ticket items, isn't he? I mean, he's kind of nailing it directly. Who among us this week has not lusted or coveted or been prideful at some point during our week? I'm not saying you've struggled with all three of those, but I'm guessing that every single person in this room has either struggled with lust or covetousness or pridefulness at some level. Who among us has not been tempted to say, you know what, I want an upgrade I want an upgrade in the spouse department. I want an upgrade in the car department. I want an upgrade in the house department. I want an upgrade on life. I'm not pleased with where I am today. I want something a little more, a little better in those categories. Or who among us hasn't, <laughs> hasn't tried to get a little more respect from those at work? I need a little, I need a little attaboy. Would you... Would you show me some respect, please? I mean, I did that project and nobody cared. I worked incredibly hard. I built that thing. I want some respect. Who among us doesn't at some point think of these things? I mean, honestly. I know you're in Christian, you're, you're in church and you're a Christian and you're wearing your Sunday best, most of you. But I mean, who among us are not tempted by these things? Church, these are the things of the world. These are the things that the world values and the world worships with their day-to-day lives. I remember when I first became a believer. I was 18 years old when I first came to Christ. And I learned about the Scriptures. I was discipled by guys. And it was interesting to me because the more I dug into Scripture, the more I was discipled, the more I realized that the world we live in is completely upside down. The things we value in our world run contrary to the Scriptures. Think about these things for just a minute. If we are to live, Jesus says you must die to yourself. Matthew's Gospel. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, that's how you'll save it. Upside down. To lead, Jesus says, you must be a servant. Hmm. Jesus says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
upside down. To love. Believers are encouraged to place the needs of others above our own. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. It's upside down. In all of these things, this is why Jesus summarized the Christian life in a single, clear, focused pursuit. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Church, do you remember how we started today? Thinking about the love that God has for His people, and then I mentioned there were a few things that God does not love. In Christ, God loves you. But God also rejects what the world embraces. And as the Apostle John has helped you and I see today in this writing, God wants his followers to reject those things too. This is why John closes out the text by saying, The world, the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, in the power of the Holy Spirit, may you and I seek first God's kingdom. May we turn away from the temptations of this world and what the world offers to us. And instead, may we walk in His ways. And may we do His will. May we abide in Him. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.